If you have your copy of God's Word, uh, let us open up to the book of 1 Samuel, and uh, we continue along in uh, the narrative uh, in chapter 10 today is what we'll walk through. Growing up, um, going to school, one of the things, I love school, I, I love being there, one of the things I despised was when you'd show up for class and your teacher would assign group projects. I'll be honest with you, I hated group projects. The reason why I hated group projects not was because uh, it was you're in a group, enjoyed people, but inevitably within every group, there were always a couple of freeloaders in the group, right? Like there was always one or two uh, that like had tasks assigned to them, but didn't actually like do the thing that they were supposed to do. And so they sort of piggybacked on everybody else, right? You know what I'm talking about? Like the person sitting next to you, that was, they were probably a freeloader back in the day, Right. And, and I hated those things because you had responsibilities, like you knew what you were supposed to do, but you didn't do it. And then they would end up getting credit for a lot of the work they didn't do and not following what the teacher had told them to do and, and obey. You know, it's one thing as a uh, person involved in a group project in class to not do what you're supposed to do and to not lead in the way that you're supposed to lead. It's quite another to be, to have a direction and a word from the Lord and for God to tell you to do something and then you choose not to do it. What we have leading up to chapter 10 of 1 Samuel is we have the people that are just in really complete rebellion. And they've just decided to outright reject the authority of God and the authority of God over their life to protect them and to provide for them. And so the people of God, the Israelites, begin to cry out to God and say, listen, give us a leader so that we can be like everybody else. And so they cry out over and over and over again. And so finally God, he gives them what they want. Though he doesn't give it in the, the most precise way that they would have hoped for, we, we began to see last week as God began to call out a man named Saul to become the first king and to lead his people. And so we saw last week how uh, Saul was described um, outwardly as physically being a good-looking guy with broad shoulders. He was taller and larger than most, and he stood out amongst all of his peers. And then Samuel begins this interaction with him as they encounter each other as Saul's looking for donkeys and he can't find the donkeys. And eventually they end up in front of Samuel. And I want to pick up beginning in verse 6 where we left off last week of 1 Samuel chapter 10. And so God's word this morning for us says this, and the spirit of the Lord will rush upon you. This is Samuel speaking about Saul. And you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Now, when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. One of the things that we saw last week as Samuel was talking to Saul, we identified that there were a group of Philistines that had begun to encircle the Israelites. And they were about to attack or be attacked. They were about to oppress or be the oppressor. And so what happens is, in the context of this, Samuel sends Saul down to this location. And if you notice in verse 7, this little phrase, which is actually an idiom found in the Hebrew Bible, do what your hand finds you to do. What this means is, Saul, go down to the people of God where they are, the Israelites, who are encircled by the Philistines, and go to war with them. I've raised you up for this time as a military leader. I'm now giving you permission to go to battle. 
And the reason why we know that that idiom means go to war and go to battle is we see this phrase elsewhere in Judges 9.33, where the same phrase is used and the context is it is time to get after it and to get busy militarily speaking, and it is time to sort of put a whooping on the enemies. And so Samuel tells Saul, go do what your hand finds you to do because he gives him the promise because God's with you and he's, he's going to bless this. Verse 8, he says, then go down before me to Gilgal and behold, I'm coming down to you after burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you're going to wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. Now, as Saul is about to receive this anointing and this blessing from from Samuel and, and because of God, and he's about to become the king over Israel, Samuel just gives Saul two very distinct and very simple commands. Number one, go to war. And number two, when you get to this other city, stay there and wait on me. Don't do anything. Just go there and just wait for I'm coming to, to make offerings and we're going to pray and we're going to do some business and I will show you what it is that you are supposed to do. <coughs> Verse 9 continues along and he says, So when he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. And all these signs came to pass that day. Now, Hebrew scholars in verse 9 are sort of on opposite ends of what does this mean when, when the Bible says that God gave him a new heart and could have made him a new person? And the problem with this rendering of, of, of the trouble or the conversation that I guess that exists within the, the language here is that we know the rest of the story in 1 Samuel and we know that Saul is utterly a failure as a leader and failed to follow, and failed to pursue, and failed to obey. And so the contention here is, was Saul in this moment, was he made new to the degree to which he knew the Lord our God the way that we would know him or the way that Old Testament standards would, would know and to quantify that he is someone walking with God? Or was this in this moment a false conversion, if you will? Was there some initial change in behavior, but then do we see Saul ultimately go back and begin to regress and into some old behavior? And I would contend with you, based on the context of what happens in chapter 10 and all of Scripture uh, in its totality, that this was not an issue of conversion, but something did happen to Saul. And he was slightly different, and there were some things that began to, to take place, and he began to prophesy, <coughs> these signs began to come to pass. And one of the things I think that we can gather from that, whether or not Saul was actually saved or not saved, is this. For the believer, if you've genuinely been saved and, and born again, as the Word of God would say, then listen to me very carefully. You should be acting and thinking and feeling differently because of who is now in you. That if you've been changed by the gospel and the word, then, then what that means is that there ought to be some sort of, of change that takes place within your life. Your heart ought to be changed and, and moved in different directions. And because your heart is changed, listen, your physical behavior and what you do ought to change. It ought to demonstrate that you actually know the Jesus that you sing about and that you proclaim to know him. And so the reality for many of us is this. We can speak and talk about grace on Sunday, but there are too many of us, perhaps in this world, that Monday through Saturday, 
Rather than practicing and living in grace and in mercy and showing compassion, instead, we practice pride and arrogance. And we practice control and manipulation and power. And we begin to exude through the rest of the week all of the opposites of what would exist within the fruit of the Spirit. And so if God says that at salvation, the fruit of of God's labor and effort and endeavor, the love and the joy, the peace and the patience, the kindness, the goodness, the faithfulness, the gentleness, the self control. Too many Christians forget all of those things. And we maybe encompass them on a Sunday morning, but then as soon as we go home, we log into social media or we get online or we go to work tomorrow and we begin to exhibit the exact opposite of the fruit of the Spirit in our life. But something happened to Saul, whether he was saved or or not, we we don't entirely know, but that misses the point. It says that when he came in verse 10 to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him. And the Spirit of God rushed upon him and he prophesied. And when all who knew him, verse 11, previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, what has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And and a man of the place answered, And who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb. Is Saul among the prophets? And when he had finished prophesying, it says he came to the high place. And Saul's uncle said to him, Who happened to be there? Where'd you go? And he said, To seek the donkeys like you sent me after. And when he saw that they were not to be found, we went to Samuel. And Saul's uncle said, Well, please tell me what Samuel said to you. And Samuel said to his uncle, He told us plainly that the donkeys had been found, but about the matter of the kingdom of which Saul, Samuel had spoken, he did not tell him anything. And we saw in the very beginning in verses 6 and 7 that Samuel gave Saul two very distinct commands. Do what is right with your hands. Go to war, go to battle. And then when you get there, wait on me as well. You can go to war if you want to, but if you don't go to war and you don't go to battle, at least wait on me until I get there to make the offerings. And what we begin to see in the text, and it's subtle, but, it, but it's there when it says, when he'd finished prophesying in verse 13, he then goes to the high place. And what we begin to see about Saul is we see a spiritual indifference to the commands that God had given through the prophet Samuel. And Saul begins on this trajectory to begin to walk in a way that's right according to his own eyes. And he disobeys God. He doesn't deal with the Philistines like he was given permission to do. He doesn't wait on Samuel. Instead, he goes to the high place in his own way and he begins to do things that Samuel did not allow him to do. And this is an indication foreshadowing of the indifference, spiritually speaking, the cultivation that was not there in Saul's heart, evidence of a changed man who wanted to listen to the Word of God and wanted to submit his life to that Word, and he wanted to follow it in obedience. Notice what he says in verse 16 when he says, but about the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel spoke, and he did not tell him anything. When I read that word, that phrase, I was struck by it because we haven't seen that word king and kingdom in in several chapters. It's sort of noticeably been absent, if you will, in there. And in one sense, he's referring to the kingdom that God was going to build through Saul and what he was going to do to him. But I think there's a larger kingdom that, that he's referring to because we'll see this later on in the text and how it connects back to this. And what God wanted Saul to do was God wanted Saul to be about God's kingdom, not Saul's. And can I tell you this this morning, friend, 
God is not concerned about your kingdom. He's not concerned in building your name. He's not concerned with building your profile or your presence. What God is solely concerned about is building his kingdom. And in his kingdom, he so wraps it up in his sovereignty and in his goodness that he brings you along to work according to his kingdom, to build his kingdom up and his namesake up. Because what we need to be constantly reminded of as the people of God is that it is not about us. But it's only ever always been about him. And what God wants to do in his goodness is he wants to use you to build his kingdom. There's a lot of pastors and preachers and teachers and doctors and lawyers and accountants and factory workers and whatever it is that you do that need to be reminded of that truth that God in his goodness brings you in to work in his kingdom and to come alongside him in his kingdom to use it for his glory and for your good. But the kingdom of God that God is talking about here, it's about building his kingdom. And you see in this moment, Saul knew that what he was talking about. Saul knew about God's kingdom, and and yet Saul still chose in this moment to begin this process of disobeying that sort of sent him down on this trajectory. And so then what begins to happen in verse 17, we see this shift where you have this narrative of of what Samuel is saying to Saul and how Saul disobeys. But now God must bring about, in in essence, the the fullness of, of time and what's going on. In verse 17, we see this shift and Samuel begins to preach to the people of God. And he, and I know Samuel was Baptist because he gives a three point sermon to the people in this moment. Now, it's questionable whether or not he was Southern Baptist because he didn't use any alliteration, but at least he did have three points. And I want you to see what it is that Samuel does as he calls the people of God back to this place to inaugurate, if you will, Saul's kingship, his little kingship, if you will. What Samuel begins to do first is he begins to remind the people of what God had done. Listen to these words in verse 17. He says, now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah. And he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought you up out of Egypt and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians, from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. What he's doing is he's reminding them of what God had done. Isn't this what God is like? Isn't our God a good God that brings us up out of the land of Egypt, away from slavery and bondage? And though we might not have literally been slaves and held with, with uh, chains on our hands, the, the chains and the weight of sin that exists, and our God delivers us and can deliver us and will deliver us from the bondage of sin. So that we don't have to walk around as as slaves and those with with no hope. And what he's doing in this moment, he's saying, listen, look what I've done to redeem you out of. I've taken your shame and your condemnation and and I've given you hope and and I've given you faith. I've given you confidence in in who I am, not necessarily who you are, but, but look how good I am. Remember what I have done for you in your life, friends. This morning, will you remember just for a moment what it is that God has done in your life to save you from your sins, to free you 
so that you don't have to be held down by the, the weight of sin. Yes, sin is heavy and it is a yoke and it becomes unbearable to walk in. But the more we begin to preach the truth of the gospel and the freedom that comes with following Jesus, the more we begin to see those chains instantly being broke loose and we're reminded that our God set us free from the land of Egypt and brought us into the promised land. And God, in this moment through Samuel, he says, remember what I have done. I brought you out of oppression. But then he turns in verse 19. He says, look what God has done. But now I want you to hear what you've done. But today you have rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and all your distresses. And you have said to him, said to him set us a king over us. This seems like pure madness in the hearts of God's people. This seems absolutely absurd and, and insane that they would watch God deliver them from sin and watch God deliver them from their enemies and, and yet they would still reject his authority in their life and they would cry out for their own earthly king for they think that he can do better than their God, you have rejected your God who saves you from all these things. And you have said to him, set us a king in my place. And point three, you remember what God has done. You see what you have done. Now you present yourself to the Lord. You come to be present. Now for present yourselves before him by your tribes and by your thousands. So Samuel, in verses 20 through 24, he brings all of the, the thousands of people before him. All the clans and, and all the, the people. And they inquired again of the Lord, who, who is the man that will lead us? And so they draw these lots. And then of course it's Saul. And Samuel knows this. And, and when we read this, I believe it's intended to sort of be read on top of, a, of another place in Scripture where we see the, in Judges the sin of, of Achan. Where he takes things that, that didn't belong to him and he keeps them in a tent and the punishment of God is on the people of God. So they draw lots and, and they discover it's Achan. They go to his tent. He's collected all these things that he's not supposed to hold on to that God said, don't do this. And, and so they run to his tent to remove uh, the things from the tent that the Lord prohibited. And in verses 20 through 24, when Saul is identified, they run to find Saul. And then notice at the end in verse 24, he says, and all the people shouted, long live the king. And Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship, and he wrote them in a book and laid it before. Then Samuel sent all the people away. I want you to see the irony that exists here in the text, something I had never seen before until this week. At this point, Saul is the king of Israel. And Saul's very first act as king, as anointed king chosen by God, is that he is to submit to the prophet of God. His very first act as a king, and he's not the king that's sending people away, but rather Samuel is the one sending people away. And what that teaches us is though God may give us what we want, and he's going to give it to us, maybe not in a way that we wanted to have it, even in our sin and even in our rebellion, God is still going to rule 
all. He will be the one that makes the commands. He will be the one that tells the people. He will be the one that provides the roadmap and the principles and the truth that we are to look for. And Samuel is the one that sends all of the people away. And it says in verse 27, but some worthless fellows said, how can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present, but he held his peace. Now these worthless fellows were not rejecting Saul because they knew that the people of God had rejected God. But rather these worthless fellows, a word that we haven't seen since we saw this be described towards Eli's two sons in the first chapter, if you remember that, they were worthless sons. But these are men that understand that God in his kindness in a response to a prayer had given them a ruler and yet these men still, they rejected God as leader and now they rejected the man that God had put over them, the king, to answer their prayer in this moment. These worthless fellows said, how can this man save us? But he held his peace. I gotta be honest with you, when I read that this week, the thing that I thought was, well, Saul is the king. We've seen this spiritual uh, lethargy, if you will, uh, this lethargic attitude in Saul's life, not obeying Samuel and doing what he was supposed to do and being on mission with him. And now you've got these people that, that are speaking to him where he can hear, and it says that he holds his peace. As a king, come on, man. Like, you're the king in this moment. Like, there's a, a time for, like, justice and to, to reconcile these men and, and what it is that they're saying. This is not a, an attitude or a posture of, of him being prudent and patient with them. This is an attitude of him just being completely passive spiritually, but also relationally with people. He's the king. And yet he says nothing. In the end, what Saul teaches us as he teaches us this posture sort of as a warning as the people of God to not be like Saul, faithless, non-trusting, no hope in God. And the question that I think it poses at the end of the day is it asks this question for us, what does faithfulness look like in the midst of being surrounded by a bunch of faithless people? And Saul answered that in his own way and how we would apply this. What does faithfulness look like in a faithless world? I would say first and foremost to you that faithfulness is refusing to compromise your integrity and your convictions. To be faithful means that I refuse to compromise not my preferences, but my convictions that I believe that the word of God teaches and I'm unwilling on those main tier one fundamental things that these are uncompromising truths of the gospel that I will not let go of. And we must be a people of great conviction. But number two, faithfulness is conforming your life to the scriptures and not the culture around you. Somebody at the end of the last service this morning, they said, Pastor, um, he said, does, does truth change with the times? And he was wrestling with culture and, and context and, and those kinds of things. And, and I go into like my internal mode. Where I'm like, I'm, I really, what's the real question he's asking here? Does he really mean does, does truth change? And I thought about it for just a moment. Here's what I said to him. I said, listen, truth never changes. But the application of truth will change throughout the times.
and how we apply truth. The truth is, is everlasting, but we as a people are changing and the generations are changing. And it's about the application of that truth in the lives and in the hearts of, of people so often because we are a different people today than we were yesterday. The truth of God's word is, is always the same, but I'm a different person today than I was yesterday. And I'm at a different place today than I was yesterday. I'm a different person than I was a week ago and a month ago and a year ago. And though that truth always stays the same, the truth applies to my life and it meets me right where I'm at every day and every minute as I change and as it changes me. And so the truth of God's word never changes, but the application of it does. We as a people, unlike Saul, will not capitulate, if you will, to the changing culture around us. We will always believe that marriage is between a man and a woman. We will always believe uh, and be a pro-life people that, that conception, birth, start, life begins at conception. These are things that we won't compromise on. We believe the Bible teaches these things and is quite clear in regarding these things. We believe the Bible is clear when it comes to gender roles and identity and, and how we would speak against those, that he makes a male and, and a female. And these are two very different beings, though made in the image of God. It is not something that is fluid that the culture would teach. And we believe that there was a day and age, even within our convention and even within Western Christianity, where those that proclaimed and preached the gospel yet still owned slaves and men. And we remembered that briefly last week in recognizing Juneteenth and the significance of that and, and, and acknowledging that we would be a people that would adamantly today stand up and speak out against the, the sin of, of slavery and condemn those things. Of course we would. Of course we would stand up against those that would discriminate based on color of skin or age or, or race or wherever you are. We would stand true to those things and not conform to the culture around us. Faithfulness is conforming your life to the Scriptures. Faithfulness is fighting for your relationships, not fighting within your relationships. I think a lot of people get that backwards. You've been on social media lately. It's about as contentious as I've ever seen it. And we're constantly fighting in our relationships, not contending for the relationships. And what's happening right now within uh, Christianity, within evangelicalism, and particularly with our convention, what is happening is if you don't agree with me, then we can no longer be friends. And you're in a different tribe. And you're not just a friend that disagrees with me, but rather now you're my enemy. And you must be humiliated and passively aggressively tweeted upon on a daily basis to show our differences that we are unwilling to cooperate in, in all things. Listen, we as a church, we will not be pulled into that. We will not be sucked into to those things. You see, when I say that I love you and you love me in the context of a relationship, that means we're willing to fight for our relationship. That means we're willing to have honest and hard conversations about disagreements and, and ways in which we might see the world a little bit differently. But it doesn't mean that you become my enemy and I become yours. We can still disagree and be agreeable people. Amen? 
And we won't split hairs on second and third level issues like many of our brothers and sisters in, in Christ seem to be doing. And this tribalism is tearing and is ripping. It is a, a seam in the fabric of church that is just ripping the church apart in many ways. But fighting for your relationships because you care is different than fighting within and being contentious and argumentative. And as one pastor just said this, listen, the best pastoral advice I can give you is stop being a jerk for Jesus. Said Jesus probably. <laughs> no one likes a jerk. What we say matters. But friend, every day I'm more and more affirmed that it's not just what we say, but it's how we say it. And it's who we say it to and the timing of when we say it. And do I have enough relational collateral in my pocket? Am I the one that should speak that or is someone else supposed to do that? What we say matters and how we say it matters as well. All of this is for naught in pursuing faithfulness apart from recognizing that God has been faithful to us as a people. He has saved us and redeemed us. And because God has been faithful to us through Christ, we can now go and be faithful to one another and we can be faithful as the world watches us. But the Bible teaches that apart from confessing our sins and calling upon the name of the Lord that our most valiant efforts of, of faithfulness will fall short. That through repentance of sin and asking for forgiveness, God forgives us and He makes us faithful. We don't become faithful. God makes us faithful through His Spirit. And this morning, if you want to be faithful, and the answer and the question really for you is, have you asked and allowed Christ to come into your life, to control your life, and to lead your life? Have you yielded your, your will and, and your spirit to, to His and let Him lead you and let Him guide you? Just say, Lord, open hands. Would you lead me today? I yield. I yield. I yield. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we're thankful for the good news of the gospel and that you save us. I'm thankful for this church. I pray that we learn from Saul, not be like him. Lord, we be like Samuel. Be faithful to your word and your scripture. Father, I pray that you would change us according to your word, not according to me or someone else. And so, Father, I pray that you'd have your way in these next few moments. And I pray these things in Christ's name. God's people said, Amen.